They do not want you to think too much. You had better wake up and understand that there are people who are guiding your life and you don't even know it. truth is you've been brainwashed and this is how we got here you see it all began on the afternoon of january 15th 1902 a secretive meeting that changed the course of history as we knew it was about to take place in none other of course than the rockefeller townhouse in manhattan and the records state that a middle-aged man walked into a meeting room full of lawyers bureaucrats and in the presence of one of his closest advisors signed the deed of trust that formally established an organization that would deeply impact the lives of generations to come. That man was John D. Rockefeller, and his closest advisor, a particular man with a deep connection in Washington. On that afternoon in 1902, they founded what would later be known as the General Education Board, an organization whose goal was the promotion of education within the US without distinction of race, sex, or creed, which sounds like a very noble cause. At least, that's what it looked like from the surface. You see, the name and the promise of the secret initiative, well, they were very carefully chosen. What comes to your mind when you hear the name General Education Board? Well, it's probably one of those dozen different government initiatives that overview education. I mean, surely that would be part of the Department of Education. After all, it is the government that handles education, right? You're wrong. They came up with a name that would make them look like an official government organization, but in reality, this board was not government at all. There were no government officials on the board, nor was it backed by the government whatsoever. Its purpose, one thing and one thing only, to systematically infiltrate the education system and promote its own secret agenda. And I'll reveal that secret agenda in just a second, but here's the most clever part of this whole initiative. Its promise and the name of it almost pressured politicians into backing the cause because going against the cause with a name like that wouldn't look good for any politicians in the public eyes. After all, it was a cause for the less favored people, all in the name of diversity and education, and it worked exactly as planned. Only one short year later, in 1903, the US Congress granted a formal charter to the board, providing it with a national mandate. Little did they know that they had just set in motion one of the biggest tales of mass control and manipulation in the history of the world. The idea was simple, to provide free public education to every single child in America. That would create an environment where every single person would have access to the same opportunities and would have a fair start with real chances of achieving success in life. Or at least, that was the idea that they sold to the public. Fast forward to today, and here's where we're at. The people who built the schools were consciously aiming at eradicating the will of the students who were part of the system because they wanted them to be obedient. Now, education at this point is a racket. I mean, most people will never recoup the cost of a college degree. Harvard could afford to pay their $50,000 a year tuition for their 6,000 students. You know for how long? Not 10 years, not 30 years, not 50 years, 120 years for free and not asking for another penny. Over half of recent college graduates are unemployed or underemployed. And the sole reason why colleges are so expensive in the first place is because of the loans themselves. That was their plan all along. The unpayable student debt, the new wave of wokeness invading the floors of universities to Fortune 500 companies, the job crisis, the bullshit corporate agenda, all of it was part of a much bigger plan and a web of hidden interests spun over the course of 300 plus years with one single ultimate objective, eradicating the free will of an entire generation and turning you into a mindless, obedient worker. And those are just the tip of the iceberg of my findings over the last few months. And it really all started with me trying to figure out how this recent woke culture invaded our society across all the social media apps to the biggest initiatives of the biggest investment firms in the world. But what I found was a much bigger story here that's not being told. A very carefully crafted plan, 
a plan that connected all of these problems together, a plan that has been kept secret for a long time, dating back to over 250 years ago. A plan that, if people were aware of their existence, would rock the foundations of the current system and expose the side of the system that is hidden in the shadows. A plan that is crafted by three notorious individuals over the course of three centuries and broken down into four stages of social conditioning. And how you can implement them to control the masses as you wish. All of it was laid out in the pages of an old book that started to be written in 1763. And you are about to see for the first time what's in the pages of this book. dates back to 1806. There was one specific event that changed the course of the world forever, and it created a cascade effect that still deeply affects us to this day. Back then, the territory in Europe that is known today as Germany was a part of Prussia. Now, Prussia had somewhat of a fearsome reputation as one of the most powerful armies of Europe, and they managed to quickly expand from Germany and conquer territories of the current day Poland, Denmark, Belgium, Lithuania, Luxembourg, and even a big chunk of Russia. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In 1806, that was the year that the Prussian Empire faced Napoleon's France during the Napoleonic Wars. And as you may know, that marked the fall of Berlin to the hands of Napoleon. Meaning, the supposedly unbeatable army of Prussia was defeated. And that put the intellectuals of Prussia in crisis mode. I mean, how could such a better trained army from the feared Prussian Empire lose to Napoleon's weaker forces. They could not digest the defeat of Prussia. So the intellectuals came to one conclusion. The reason as to why the Prussian army was defeated was because the Prussian soldiers were thinking by themselves in the battlefield. Napoleon's soldiers, on the other hand, were only following orders. Soldiers thinking for themselves was so deadly, it costed Prussia an expensive price. You see, they were forced to sign a peace agreement they gave away about half of their territory. And they also had to pay very hefty indemnities to France and support their army, which of course ended up creating a lot of economic instability. So they needed to make sure that that would never happen again. And this is where the Conditioning Factory book started to be written. You see, the Prussians planned something that was, quite frankly, ingenious. Evil, but ingenious. You see, the problem was clear. They needed soldiers who followed orders and did as they were told, without ever questioning anything. And what was the way that the Prussians found to do that? Indoctrination. So they created an eight-year education system. The sole purpose of it? To indoctrinate children and teach them to obey, comply, and do as they're told. This newborn education system would teach them to follow orders, to comply without questioning, to respect the authority of their superiors. The Prussian leaders would teach the kids just enough so they could follow orders and be useful to the ones at the top, but not too much that they started thinking for themselves. And I'm gonna show you exactly how this new system accomplished that in chapter three. Now, the system was also the perfect solution to another problem that the Prussian Empire had been facing. You see, a few years earlier, the Prussian Empire had just invaded and conquered a huge part of Poland, which was great, but also created a massive challenge how would they get the Polish people to accept them as their rulers? I mean, after all, they were their enemies. They were the colonizers. And now they needed to get the very people they were waging war against to give up their Polish roots and accept and embrace the Prussian imperialism. So the Prussians got to one conclusion. You see, the adults were too proud of their Polish roots and nothing would change their minds. They were simply a lost cause. But the children, the children were different. You see, the children could be indoctrinated into a proud Prussian imperialist. And what better way to do that than brainwash them through their entire childhood? And that is how the Prussian education system was born. And it worked. I mean, kids would come in as bright, creative, enthusiastic children and come out as obedient, mindless, and not capable of thinking for themselves. And most importantly, convinced that the king is just and his decisions should never be questioned. And these kids, well, they made for perfect soldiers. And after only a few short years, the masses had no independent thinking left inside of them. And that was the Prussian model of obedience. And it was the first chapter of what I like to call the conditioning factory. And I'll explain in detail what I mean by that over the next few chapters. Because, and I know this is hard to believe, 
it gets so much worse. The secret origins of the modern day education system. Now there is something really important for you to understand here. Virtually all of the big problems that we face today are a direct consequence of what I'm about to uncover right now. And this is the reason you fail to succeed. Not because you're a failure, but because the system has been set up for you to fail from the get-go. And the thing you need to understand is you will keep failing until you understand the root of the problem and more importantly, address it. Otherwise, every single thing that you try, every single new job, every single new venture, every single new business, every single new side hustle will just be different paths that lead to the same destination, failure. And you might think that if you are not currently in college or if you dropped out of school, this doesn't really apply to you. And that is another way that they keep you indoctrinated. Because listen, you may have skipped a few steps of their indoctrination plan, but at the end of the day, if you follow the traditional path and end up in some soulless corporate career, then you're still a part of their system because it goes way beyond the education system itself. And I'm gonna show you exactly how in the next chapters. So if you don't want failure to be the final result of every single venture you try in life, pay very close attention because I'm about to show you the root of the problem. And then I'll show you how you can address it. I should reply that the very recognition of and reliance upon free will in the pupil is the first mistake of the old system. You have to remember that the reason the Prussian created its education system in the first place is because they believed that individuals who had free will were a threat to their imperialist regime. They imposed risk to the system. The Prussian intellectuals saw free will of their people as the number one risk to their empire. And all of this hatred towards free will derives from the school of thought of one single philosopher. One philosopher in particular who was the biggest influence to the Prussian education system. This guy was responsible for turning their system into a conditioning factory that strips citizens of their free will and turns them into obedient and mindless citizens. He went by the name of Johann Gottlieb Fitch. And here's what he envisioned for their education system. In his own words, Education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. When this technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for more than one generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen. He has literally written that down in his books. And notice how from the get-go, the system was built with the interest of its creators in mind rather than the interest of the students that go through the systems themselves. And you'll soon see how this is a very common theme that repeats many times. But before that, I ask you the question, what are the odds that someone going through a system built on these principles and turning out to be successful in life, becoming a free independent individual, how more likely are they to turn into a mere product of the system? Very likely. Now you probably don't even suspect it, but if you're watching this, chances are you went through the system yourself. 1843, that was a very pivotal year that set the foundation for the modern day education system. Enter a man that goes by the name Horace Mann. You see, Horace Mann was a notorious American congressman, part of the US House of Representatives of the American Congress, who later would be known as the father of American public education. Just a short five years before, he had been nominated the head of the newly created Board of Education of Massachusetts. And he had one mission, to reform the American education system. For years, he had been researching different education models in European countries to find successful case studies that he could export back to the USA. And finally, he found what he was looking for. And yes, of course, you guessed it, the Prussian education system. And he had one goal in mind, implementing the same system in the US. I mean, after all, if that system managed to remove every ounce of nationalism from the people of a country that was brutally invaded, I mean, what could it do for the interests back in America? Well, it's definitely easy to say that Horace Mann had big plans for the newly discovered conditioning factory, I mean, education system. And he was so impressed with the results that the Prussians were getting that he decided to personally travel to Germany with a board of educators. So that way he could learn in person the inner workings of their system. And after returning to the US, he went on a campaign and lobbied heavily in Congress for this exact same system to be adopted in the US. And it really didn't take too long for his efforts to start creating results. Over the next three decades, multiple American dignitaries traveled to Germany to get degrees directly from the Prussian system. They would then come back to the US and staff the universities and schools 
across the country. And by the 1900s, all of the PhDs in the US were trained in Prussia. In just a few short years, Horace had the system streamlined. He had the people in place, he had the funding from the government and the support from the public who backed his noble idea of making education public, widely available. He had successfully implemented what's described as the first stage of conditioning in the conditioning factory book. And now he was on to the second stage. The goal, maximize the reach of the system. And he came up with a very clever way to do that. Have you ever asked yourself, why is education mandatory? Well, Horace is to blame for that too. His 10th annual report in 1846 led to the first state law that made it mandatory for kids to attend school in the state of Massachusetts. So now you have two options. You either give your children to the government to let them indoctrinate them with their ideals, or the second option is you get thrown into jail. And it's no wonder that attendance rates started to skyrocket. And that same year, he supported the governor of Massachusetts in adopting the Prussian model of education for the entire state. And how did he do that? Let's just say that the governor of the state at the time was the very first to receive a PhD from Prussia. Once the system was completely implemented in Massachusetts, the game was on. The system started to spread itself throughout the US in record time. It spread to New York, and then other states soon followed. Slowly but surely, parents, children, and society as a whole started to accept the Prussian model as the only sensible way of educating children. Without ever suspecting the true motives behind it, and by the end of the 1800s, the Prussian system had dominated America. To make sure they'd killed any remaining traces of other education systems, by 1864, Congress made it illegal for Native American kids to be taught in their native language. Instead, they'd be sent away to boarding schools to go through the same conditioning factory. From then on, every single American child grew up under the Prussian system of obedience. Now listen, if you're not from the US, you're probably thinking right now, well, I'm not from the US, so that doesn't really affect me. What does this have to do with me? <laughs> well, I'm sorry to tell you, but at this point, the influence of the Prussian education system, it was already growing internationally with the help of Prussians and Horace Mann himself. You see, soon after, the Canadian superintendent of schools, well, he came to Horace to learn more about the system himself and also ended up traveling to Prussia to go through the same process that Horace did. And on the other side of the ocean, the Prussian Empire grew its influence in Europe more and more. And with that, their system started to spread accordingly across the entire continent. And it got even worse after World War II, but more on that later. For now, what you need to understand is this. If you went to school either in the US, Canada, South America, or a country from Europe, you have been indoctrinated through the Prussian system. And if that's the case, you need to understand how this system has impacted you and what it is doing to you today. Let's go back to our favorite Prussian philosopher, Johann Gottlieb Fitch. The new education must consist essentially in this, that it completely destroys freedom of will in the soil which it undertakes to cultivate and produces on the contrary strict necessity in the decisions of the will, the opposite being impossible such a will can henceforth be relied on with confidence and certainty. Now, how would they achieve this level of social conditioning? For that, they needed an effective method. Well, turns out that Johann not only developed the philosophy behind the Prussian education system, but he also developed the method through which it would accomplish his goal of destroying the free will of students and making them lifelong slaves of their schoolmasters. Combined, John Locke's view that the human mind at birth is a blank slate and Rosu's ideas on how to write on that blank slate, he established a scientific method on how to indoctrinate children and strip them of their free will. And the method consisted of, first, carefully choosing the subjects that students must learn, what they should think about and for how long, instead of allowing them to discover what they like and are naturally talented at. Standardized books that would have students believing the sides of history and philosophy that was most convenient to the state's interests. Then they would also standardize testing across all schools and made sure that the right answers were the answers that they wanted to hear from the students. In case the students were thinking for themselves instead of thinking how the system wanted them to think, they'd simply get punished through their grades. And talking about punishing, they'd also punish children who misbehave. The entire system was set in a way to enforce discipline and obedience. Children would have to ask for permission to talk, to drink water, and to go to the bathroom. 
to stand up, to do anything. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but they purposely made the schools look like prisons. That's why they put the children sitting in rows. That's why they had alarm bells. That's why they had strict timings for classes and intervals. Had children in classes based on age groups, as well as have the children listening to what a teacher says with little to no interaction. And a very important part of the method as well was having the teachers themselves not realizing that what they were doing was indoctrinating the youth. You see, from the teacher's perspective, they're just doing their job by educating the youth. And most importantly, having a time-intensive curriculum that took the children away from their families for majority of the day, lowering their family time to a minimum. So that way that the families wouldn't have a chance to teach them their own values. And they would learn their values the way the system wanted them to instead. Now, let me ask you something. How oddly similar is this system to the one that we have across the world today? How many of those things have you experienced yourself when you were in school? And this is why I'm telling you, this is not a mere coincidence. And it all comes from the three secret figures who wrote the book on how to create a conditioning factory and turn free individuals into obedient, mindless factory workers. Johan himself. Now, the big question is, why does no one know about him? Why do we not learn about this true secret origins of our education system? Well, maybe that's because the model was designed with the interests of the elites in mind instead of the interests of the individual, and they had to keep that fact hidden so that the masses wouldn't suspect of their most effective tool of mass control. Oh, and maybe it's also because one of the other small details I forgot to mention about our very forward-thinking philosopher, Johann. You see, after Berlin was occupied by Napoleon in 1807, Johann actually gave a series of very famous addresses to the German nation. And on them, he actually spoke about the superiority of the German people above all others. And he would fervently call for a united German nation and preach them as a unique culture and spiritual entity. And the content of these speeches was a catalyst for the Prussian education system. Does that, does that ring a bell to you? Maybe about, I don't know, another infamous movement that happened in Germany, you know, that preached about the superiority of Germans above all other races and how they should act as one united nation, something like that. Like, I feel like there was a guy who used to talk about that. Now, if that still doesn't ring a bell for you, let me just go ahead and make it even easier for you. In other early works, Johann also called Jews a state within a state that would undermine the German nation. And he openly expressed a desire to expel Jews from Germany. So he basically preached German superiority. He called for a united German nation and he wanted to expel Jews from Germany. Yeah, I, I feel like I've definitely seen this before. Well, it turns out that Johann had a deep influence on the rise of the Third Reich and his addresses to the German nation contained elements of a cultural and linguistic nationalism that the Nazis would later heavily draw upon. And most importantly, historians point out that one of the greatest social factors that allowed Nazism to achieve mass adoption in Germany was because of how German people were bred from birth to be obedient and to respect authority without ever questioning all because of their indoctrination-based education system that was implemented decades earlier from the work of Johann. Still to this day, Johann is seen as one of the biggest influences of Nazism and Neo-Nazism, which means that the current day education system employed all around the world is based on the system created by one of the biggest influencers of the Nazis. Yeah, no wonder they don't want you to know about the true origins of the education system. And it also begs the question, why would the father of modern education make it a law that every child spend their youth in a system created by the father of neo-Nazism? And how are we setting ourselves up knowing that the entirety of the population from North America to Europe today were raised in the same system adopted by pre-Nazi Germany? I'm gonna give you a spoiler. It is directly related to the woke culture and the war on free speech that we are experiencing today. And I'm gonna cover this in detail in episode two that goes live on Thursday. Now, are you convinced yet that the education system you went through was never actually created to make you a critical thinker and a free successful individual, but rather turn you into a brainwashed prisoner of the system? If not, don't worry. This is still just the tip of the iceberg. It gets so much worse. You see, this system wasn't complete yet. Despite the efforts of Horace Mann, he never managed to push America to stage two of conditioning. You see, at this point, America and the other countries that had recently implemented the Prussian model, well, they were still in stage one of conditioning. 
They obeyed and believed everything that their government would say, meaning their free will was already gone, which was wonderful for the government itself, but not everyone was completely happy with it. That's because the recent industrial revolution had caused a shift in powers. The government wasn't the biggest man on the block anymore. America had new kings that quickly ascended to the positions of power. These were the corporate titans, and one in particular had a big need that he wanted to fulfill, John D. Rockefeller. You see, at the time, his oil empire was growing so much that his biggest bottleneck was one thing and one thing only, factory workers. He needed a herd of mindless, obedient workers to work in oil rigs, extraction, transportation, refineries, etc. And he saw in the Prussian education system the perfect opportunity to create that much needed herd of mindless, obedient factory workers to slave away for his empire. He too had read the conditioning factory book on how to turn regular people into products of the system. And he noticed that Horace Mann had missed a few key steps that, if were implemented, would create the exact type of brainwashed workers that he needed. The biggest one was the public education system that Horace had implemented still didn't have a standard curriculum to follow. And that was one of the key pillars for the Prussian model. And in Rockefeller's mind, the deal was simple. The kids weren't learning anything that were of any use in any oil refinery, mine, or factory. It didn't matter how obedient the masses were if they couldn't work in his oil empire to expand his operations further. So Rockefeller also saw the need of indoctrinating the American population into the narrative that work would set them free. This way, they had a reason, something to work for. Their life would now have meaning. So what did Rockefeller do? He came up with a plan to infiltrate and take over control over the public education system. And he teamed up with one of his closest advisor, Frederick T. Gates, to turn that plan into reality. And this is how we go back to the meeting from the beginning of the episode. The plan they had was simple yet very effective. Create a board that sounded like an official government board for education, get the board officially approved by the government, and then push the agenda of promoting education without the distinction of race, sex, or creed in order to get the government funding and approval to massively scale the school network, and then instill in the masses the idea that only work could set them free. And in order to get a high paying job, they needed education. And here's the plan in Frederick's own words. In our dream, we have limitless resources and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We're not to raise up among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. And that plan is what led to the creation of the General Board of Education, as I mentioned at the beginning of the video. By 1903, Rockefeller and Gates had successfully secured the government approval for their board alongside 3.5 billion in funding to build thousands of schools across the country. In a few short years, this absolutely transformed the amount of schools in the United States of America. And after that, every new generation would go to school ready to learn and become critical thinkers, only to come out of school as an obedient factory worker with no big aspirations. Workers who are perfectly happy working a factory job with no prospect of ever being truly free in their life. I mean, after all, they believed that only work could set them free. And that's what they were doing, turning you into a product of the system. Someone who gets treated like a product that at the end of the day can be easily replaced. They will never do more than what it was manufactured to do and that it has an expiry date. And with that, Rockefeller successfully turned America into stage two conditioning by simply following the steps that was laid down decades earlier by the great Prussian philosopher and secret figure Johann Gottlieb Fitch. That's exactly what Rockefeller had just accomplished. And that's how John D. Rockefeller himself also wrote his name as co-author of the Conditioning Factory book and became the third secret figure that created the modern day education system. Or Conditioning Factory, should I say. Soon enough, other industry tycoons were jumping into the education ship. Andrew Carnegie started to sponsor public education. I mean, he too needed more machine workers, engineers, mine operators, Railroad workers, repairmen, the list goes on. You know who else jumped on this bandwagon? Ford himself. In just a few years, they had the entire system streamlined 
from state-sponsored textbooks and standardized tests to indoctrinating teachers under this new Prussian Rockefeller model of education. Rockefeller's plan had worked, and in his own words, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. Can you now see why you haven't succeeded? Even though you've put in a lot of effort into everything you've been told that would make you successful. Going to school, getting good grades, getting a good degree, working a safe job. It was all a setup from the get-go. It was never meant for you to succeed in the way you want to, but rather for you to experience success in their terms. It was only meant for you to become a product of the system. But that wasn't enough. Rockefeller was an extremely ambitious man. And he wanted to take things a step further. So here's what he did. Instead of only focusing on high schools, he started investing heavily in universities. This way, instead of indoctrinating people only until their teenage years, he could keep indoctrinating them throughout their adulthood, turning them into even better brainwashed, mindless factory workers. Selling the idea of college to the masses was pretty easy. I mean, they had already believed the narrative that work would set them free and that the only way to get good work is by being educated. So now, what did he do? He conditioned them into thinking that education equals college, something that the majority of people around the world still believe to be true to this very day. And that is the power of a narrative. And I personally think that Rockefeller himself didn't even realize what he had just created as a byproduct of that. He had just set up the foundations for one of the biggest mass control tools that is still used by governments and universities to this day. And this was the start of our modern day abusive love relationship with college degrees. Nineteen fifty-seven, one of the most iconic moments of the Cold War had just unraveled. You see, Russia launched the first man-made satellite to the orbit of the Earth with Sputnik 1. And this had very big consequences to the Americans. Why? Because it meant that using the same technology, Russia could potentially launch nuclear rockets into American territory. So American politicians came to one conclusion. If America wanted to win the war, then they needed more college grads to build such technologies. And factory workers weren't enough now. They needed highly specialized engineers, but the problem was, even though tuition was way cheaper than it is today, it was still expensive to the standards of the time. And that's when Dwight Eisenhower, president at the time, decided to take a page out of Rockefeller's book and make higher education widely available to the population. How? Through widely available student loans. Now, after getting the idea approved on Congress, he signed a National Defense Education Act, and that created the National Defense Student Loan Program. I mean, after all, who could go against a national defense initiative, especially in the height of the Cold War? And that was the beginning of something huge. Why? Because all universities realized something. With the right approach to this, they would never have to worry about money ever again because the government was willing to spend an unlimited amount of money on them. And here's where things take a turn. You see, after a few years, the government had broken through $100 billion in student loans, which would be equivalent to $1 trillion today. And that presented the government with a little bit of a problem. They started to question for how long would this be sustainable, knowing that students would only be paying this back four years later and in small portions over multiple years. So they decided to do something. They asked the bankers for help. And that was the nail in the coffin because they had just pushed America into stage three conditioning. How? Through the modern student loan system. In 1965, Congress passed something called the Higher Education Act, and it basically got almost every single student a guaranteed loan. And how did they do that? Through federal guaranteed loans. The government set up guarantee agencies that would guarantee the loans made by banks were always paid back. And what you really need to understand is how they made that happen. The banks would give out the student loans just as normal, but here's where the twist is. For every single student loan that the bank gave out, the government would give around 80% of the total value of the loan to guarantee agency. Then, if a student didn't pay back their loan, the government agency would buy the loan from the bank and attempt to collect on it. So this really shifted the risk of the default from the banks to the guarantee agencies. But the weird thing is that the guarantee agencies 
were also guaranteed. And that's because the federal government agreed to reimburse the guarantee agencies for 90% or more of the loans that they couldn't collect. Now this created a very interesting situation because kids had access to money that wasn't theirs. So they were willing to spend it no matter what the price was. And if the kid drops out, the government is still gonna pay the bill. Meaning that there was no risk for universities. And they knew that, which also meant that no matter how much they raised tuition, the government would still pay it off because they had the goal of making America the most educated country in the world. And the money was also not coming from the government's pocket. So they didn't really care how much was being spent. And that created a situation where the colleges were incentivized to rack up their prices. So what did colleges do? They started to rack it up. In the 60s alone, they increased tuition 30% above inflation. And this led to a snowball effect. Colleges started expanding to be able to accommodate more and more students, which really created a self-fulfilling cycle. More students would apply to college, so the colleges raised their tuition. And with higher tuition, more students needed loans. Now, the more loans they gave out, the more money the lenders make off of you. And that turned the entire conditioning system to a whole new level. Now they were able to indoctrinate you through your entire childhood, create a herd of mindless, obedient factory workers through college, and also make hundreds of thousands of dollars off of every single student throughout the entire indoctrination process. They had finally managed to implement something that not even the Prussians managed to do. Stage three conditioning. They brainwash you. Then they make you a product of the system. And to top it all off, they make you pay copious amounts of money to do so. I mean, listen, if you think about it, that's even better than slavery because at the end of the day, slaves don't pay you. Students, on the other hand, they pay you for that privilege. And here's the most interesting part about the entire loan system. The loans themselves became the reason as to why people needed loans in the first place, because the loans are why colleges are so expensive. So now you needed a loan to go to college, but without the loan, tuition would have just stayed the same. I mean, you can clearly see it by first looking at how steady tuition used to be before student loans were widely available. Now, look at the increase in tuition rates after they became widely available. And now compare them to how much the inflation rate and income increased during that same period. And you can see how this created a vicious cycle of the average citizen not being able to afford tuition to send their kids to college because tuitions have grown 1200% while their salaries only grew a fraction of that. Then that causes the need for student loans, which in turn makes colleges even more expensive. It is a never ending cycle to make even more money off of your back. Colleges have turned into a money-making machine for the administrators, the debtors, the bankers, and the board members. Some people even call it history's biggest scam. And just so you really understand, I wanna put it into perspective just how much money colleges truly have. Here's how much money some of the biggest companies in the world have in their cash and short-term investment balance. McDonald's, $1.6 billion. Starbucks, $3.2 billion. Disney, $11.5 billion. Coca-Cola, $15.7 billion. Meta, $53.4 billion. Now let's take a look at how much the top 10 private universities just in the US alone have in their endowments. Washington University, $12 billion. The bottom of our list here already has 10 times more than McDonald's and three times more than Starbucks. Columbia University, $13 billion, more than Disney, by the way. Northwestern University, $14 billion. University of Notre Dame, $16 billion, which by the way is the same as Coca-Cola. University of Pennsylvania, $20 billion. MIT, $24 billion. Princeton University, $35 billion. Stanford University, $36 billion. Yale University, $41 billion. Harvard University, $49 billion. Harvard has more cash than most Fortune 500 companies. And just in the US alone, there's over 130 universities with more than $1 billion in their endowments. And coincidence or not, the one with the highest amount per student, you guessed it, the Rockefeller University, who has over $35 million in their reserves for every single student in their university. I mean, what else could you expect from the family of the man that quite literally created this entire system, right? Now, how do these universities make that much money, you may ask? Is it all from tuitions? And here's where things get a little fishy. You see, if you check their financial reports, tuition only amounts to around 20% of their yearly revenue. And that seems quite odd, doesn't it? I mean, how else would a university make that much money? Well, they have another 10% that they make from federal sponsored researches. Meaning, by the way, that if you're a taxpayer, you are paying them directly out of your pocket. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that if you were to look at Harvard's financials from 2022, you would see that the biggest chunk of their revenue 
comes from philanthropy, 45% to be exact. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you're gonna see that almost all of the money under philanthropy, that comes from something called the net endowment distribution. Now you probably know this, but universities don't pay any taxes. I mean, after all, they're not a for-profit organization, right? All they do is create critical thinking citizens and improve the quality of the population. Yeah, we both know that those two couldn't be further from the truth. Here's the thing. Once universities start to really rack up student loans, they start to just have a lot of cash laying around. And I mean, a lot. So what happened was hedge funds started approaching them and saying, hey, instead of keeping all of these billions of dollars in your checking accounts, why not just create your own hedge fund and multiply this money through investments? Well, there was just one problem. They couldn't have their own hedge funds because they're not a for-profit company, right? So their genius solution, let's just call it an endowment instead. Then we let a hedge fund manager manage this money exactly as they do in their hedge funds, but instead it's tax-free. Now you might wonder why this falls under the category of philanthropy in their financials. Well, you've probably seen those multi-million dollar donations from rich individuals going to Harvard, Yale, and other universities. Like that one hedge fund manager who donated $150 million of his own personal money to Harvard. Well, where do you think all that money goes? Do you think it goes to infrastructure or to cover student loans or to their staff? No, 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 that money goes directly to their endowment. But here's the real kicker. That money is managed by an endowment manager who invests the same money in hedge funds and other investment products, which in turn have their own managers who make money through management fees. Meaning at the end of the day, that donation may or may not go back to the original donor through management fees of a string of financial instruments, but with a little added bonus. The money invested is tax-free because the universities don't pay taxes. I mean, how genius is that? And this could be a one hour long video on its own, but what's important for you to understand here is this. They use universities to further indoctrinate you into a product of the system. And while they do that, they also turn you into a debt slave to make money off of you, risk-free and tax-free. And most importantly, this system is not sustainable. Eventually, there will be no money left to lend and bankroll the system. And what do you think happens when the system runs out of money? Well, that's what you're gonna find out next. Twenty twenty three. And finally, we get to what's happening today. Today, for every dollar the government loan through student loans, tuition goes up by 60 cents. On the other hand, Harvard has enough money to pay the tuition of every single one of their students for the next 120 years in a row. So that begs the question, why do they still make their students get into hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to get a college degree? And it's also a very well known fact that 60% of graduates today won't be able to pay back their student loans. If that is the case, why are the government and banks still lending this money? And most importantly, what happens when the majority of the students don't pay back their loans? Looking at the price increase in tuition over the last few decades and comparing to how quickly it grows compared to inflation, income, and all other metrics, I can only come to one conclusion. This is unsustainable. And eventually, this system will collapse which means that there's a bubble. Now it's not the regular type of financial bubble that we're used to seeing. I see it more of a personal bubble. And here's why. The job market has changed. It's not dominated by a few Titan companies anymore. The internet has really democratized the game to a certain extent. And majority of those companies need employees who are critical thinkers and they value the skill of solving problems over the skill of following orders. But right now we're still pumping mindless obedient workers who don't know how to solve any real world problems and demand for such people is shrinking rapidly. So it begs the question, is getting a degree actually worth the investment today? And you can probably imagine my answer by now. And to be honest, this is where I'm gonna catch you off guard slightly because my answer is yes. Getting a degree is still worth the investment, but there's a catch. There's still a lot of big corporations that pay six figures to developers, engineers, data analysts, even lawyers and doctors, usually positions that are STEM or lawyer slash medicine related. So if you want to follow one of those careers, it still makes sense for a certain period of time. But here's where things take a different turn because there's also another big caveat here. There's one big question that I'm sure we've all asked ourselves before. Is success based on merit? Well, if you go into the formal job market, the truth is it's probably not. For majority of these big high paying companies, they don't hire based on merits. They don't hire the better and most qualified candidates. They hire the ones who graduated from the best universities. And it doesn't really matter how good or bad you are skill set wise. The only thing that matters is the university name stamped on your diploma. 
So listen, if you're not going to one of those Ivy League universities, you don't even have a chance against your competition. In fact, it is a very common practice for big tech companies to hire all of the talent available from such universities, even if they don't need them. And that's just to keep the pool of talent empty so that way that their competitors, they don't have anyone to hire. And this is why, I don't know if you've seen it before, there's thousands and thousands of these TikToks and YouTube shorts and all this stuff, you know, all these like day in the lives of a Google software engineer. And all they do the entire day is eat, exercise, and just wander mindlessly around the HQ, apparently without ever actually doing any work. And it's because they actually are not doing any work. Now, if you're not a graduate from one of those universities, you're just kind of left out of the party, no matter how good you are. Because as I said, in that world, the game is not based on merit, which then brings us back to the point of the personal bubble. Because here's the thing, if these big corporations are only hiring based on your diploma, a majority of those employees don't necessarily bring any value to the company, how sustainable is that? And the answer is very obvious. It's not sustainable at all. And that's why over the last 12 months, we've seen mass layoffs from big corporations like Google, Meta, Uber, etc. The bubble is not about to burst. It already started bursting. So now the obvious question is, how does this affect you? And what should you be doing? Well, the way that I look at this is that we're in a very similar situation to what happened back in 2008 during the housing bubble. If you don't remember, let me jog your memory. What happened back then was this. Everyone and their mom was getting loans to invest in real estate, even though it was obvious the majority of people getting the loans had no way of ever paying back such loans. I mean, you had waiters and maids and bus drivers with two mortgages on houses, but all the lenders, they thought it was fine. Why? because real estate was considered the safest investment in existence. I mean, no one would ever dare bet against real estate. And because it was the safest investment, everyone knew it until it wasn't anymore. And now I see us in a very similar situation. Everyone and their daughter got approved to student loans that they simply cannot pay back. But that's not even the worst part in my opinion. The worst part is that 99% of the population today is betting their entire careers on what everyone sees as the safest bet go to school, get a degree, work a safe job. In my opinion, today, this is one of the riskiest paths you could take, exactly because how the system is set up. I have just showed you, the system is not built for you to succeed. The system is built to strip you out of your critical thinking and turn you into a brainwashed, thoughtless, obedient modern day worker, a product of the system. So what used to be considered the safest route has now turned into one of the riskiest because at any moment, this won't be sustainable anymore. And when that happens, everyone who's a part of the system will have nowhere to run. So what's the solution? Well, you have two. The first one is to succeed within the system. And as I said, this is actually still a viable solution. As long as you carefully pick the right career and make your way through one of the top 1% universities. Today, this is the only safe way I see of succeeding in the system. The other option, is to succeed outside of the system. And how do you do that? The first step is to remove and unwire all of the conditioning you have been fed ever since you were four years of age. Because listen, at the end of the day, if you're watching this, you most likely live in a country at stage three conditioning. And this is such an insane level of conditioning for failure that you have been fed throughout your entire life that there is no way you could ever succeed without first addressing the thing that's stopping you from succeeding. Listen, if you feel like you have put a lot of effort into your work and your studies, and you have done everything that you were told would lead you to a successful life, but you still haven't achieved success yourself, that's why. The system was set up for you to fail from the get-go. And all of the conditioning you've been fed growing up is like a hundred foot wall in your way to success. And if you don't remove this wall from your way, you're gonna keep bumping your head on it mindlessly for as long as the wall is still there. It is only once you remove this that you can truly experience success in life. The people who can unwire all of the social conditioning that they have been fed from the conditioning factory and manage to succeed outside of the system is someone who I call an outsider. Now, if succeeding in life and truly becoming free as an individual is something that you aspire for in your life, then the question you should be asking is, how do I become an outsider myself? And the answer is actually quite simple because the path to becoming an outsider has already been written tested and proven a long time ago, long before the Prussian education system became a thing. You see, the Prussian education system dates back to the late 1700s, and humans were around long before that, thousands of years before that. And so was education. I mean, education didn't start in the late 1700s. 
It started centuries before that. And here's the thing, the ideals and principles that education was originally built upon were the ideals that make a successful, critical thinking, free individual. They were the ideals that created some of the most brilliant individuals and brightest minds that the world has ever seen. We're talking Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Leonardo da Vinci, Shakespeare, Marcus Aurelius, Socrates. They all learned and followed these principles and ideals. Principles that can still be applied to this day. And they all became outsiders in their own fields of work. And what I found out is that there are five specific principles all of these great individuals followed to become some of the most successful individuals to ever step foot on this earth. And those five lost principles are documented and have been lost in ancient writings that date back to 700 BC, which the conditioning factory has purposely tried to suppress and hide from you. Why? Because just like there is a step-by-step -step book that the elites followed to indoctrinate you, turn you into a mindless factory worker, and keep you a product of the system, there's also a step-by-step -step that teaches you how to become a truly free, successful individual. The content in these ancient writings hold the secret to breaking free of decades of indoctrination that the system has injected into your brain. The same secrets that the brightest minds in the world used throughout history to make breakthrough scientific discoveries that changed the world, created the biggest empires the human race has ever seen, and most importantly, become critical thinkers that achieved success and freedom in their own ways. And what you need to do if you wanna to succeed today is rescue those principles that are described in detail in these ancient writings. And this is why this event is called The Rescue. My mission here is to help rescue these five long lost principles that were the foundations to the greatest breakthroughs humanity has ever experienced. So with all of that being said, the question now is, do you wanna know what are the five lost principles in these ancient writings? You will, but not today. You're not ready for it yet. You see, in order for you to be ready, you have to complete a mission. That's because these principles will only make sense if you apply what you have learned today. So here's what I need you to do. I know that when I tell people about the indoctrination factory and explain that they've conditioned them to think in a certain way, well, a lot of people are very skeptical about that. So I don't want you to take my word for this. I want you to ask yourself a few questions. And then based on the answers of those questions, you choose what you wanna believe in. Do this right now if you are the person who is serious about success or you just wanna prove me wrong. Grab a pen and paper and let's go through these questions. The first question, are you afraid of renouncing on the formal path? Whether that be dropping out of college or quitting your current job, even if you know that deep down in your heart, that's what you want. Really think about this. Now, if you're afraid of it, where do you think that this fear comes from? I mean, after all, you have seen people succeeding outside of the formal path time and time again, yet you're still afraid to take the leap. So why is that? Now, my next question is, do you subconsciously think that following the formal path is your only choice? You know, your only chance at not ending up homeless on the streets. And my follow-up question is that if that fear is that intense, where do you think that comes from? Do you think it's something rational or a disbelief that has been seeded into your brain by the people around you? Maybe your parents, maybe your teachers, maybe your peers. Now I have a few more questions for you to think about, but you can find them inside of the WhatsApp group for the rescue. The link for it is in the description of this video. Now inside the file, you're also gonna find space to answer those questions because I want you to actually write down your answers because this is the only way that you'll truly think about your answers. And then on Thursday at 5 p.m. UK, once you're ready, I'm gonna reveal the five lost principles hidden in the ancient writings. So make sure to mark your calendar and come back with your missions completed. And with that, I'll see you on Thursday. This is The Rescue.